You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Welcome. I'm Chris Scott, host of Meeting Pod and contributing editor at Meeting Place and Alt Meat Magazines. Our topic today will focus on recent efforts to develop an effective weapon against highly pathogenic avian influenza, or HPAI, as the latest North American spread of the deadly virus wanes after more than two years. Dr. Carol Cardona of the University of Minnesota is a specialist in HPAI and avian health, and Dr. Michelle Crome has more than 15 years' experience in animal health and emergency disease response. She currently is the principal at Food Forward LLC, which helps companies mitigate risk with the aim of improving resiliency of the nation's food system. Our discussion will cover recent advances in fighting HBAI, including limited success using gene editing technology to make chickens more resistant to various strains of the virus that has killed millions of birds in recent years. Thanks for joining us today, Carol and Michelle. Thank you for having us. It is our pleasure. We're looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely, ditto. How about we start by bringing our listeners up to date on the latest on HBAI infections, which USDA estimates have affected more than 60 million birds across the United States since February 2022. The recommended responses have included increased biosecurity measures, culling, and establishing quarantine zones to limit the spread of the virus. The effectiveness of these efforts seems to be somewhat limited, however, are there other steps that could have been implemented in recent years to address HBAI outbreaks? Thanks for your question, Chris. To give you a little on the, the current status, I guess, you know, I always have to go to the USDA website myself to look those up. I can tell you that here in the state of Minnesota, winter appears to be already on its way out. We're starting to see migratory birds in the north, and we've already had a couple of possible cases in small flocks or backyard flocks. So the spring season has already started. And actually, I want to mention, you said that the effectiveness of stamping out or the efforts to depopulate infected flocks is somewhat limited. And actually, it's been very successful and has succeeded in every single case that has in which it has been used, but the cost is very high. And so it has not been successful in uh, perhaps being the most sustainable practice. And so I think there's some things that we could perhaps do to make that process of stamping out more sustainable, such as being more precise in how we apply that process. So really narrowing down to those infected birds as much as we can. We do have new technologies and we have different ways to do things now and better ways to sense what's possible and understand risk. And so we really could do a lot more. And so reworking the strategies of control. And one of the key things I think we need to do really is to probably rework how our systems are working together and get some epidemiology on what's causing this. Again, appreciate the opportunity to chat today, Chris. The big picture from the field perspective is that we just need more veterinary expertise really to support producers and our regulatory agencies. We do have a shortage of veterinarians in rural areas, which probably some of the listeners are already aware of, but I think it becomes very apparent in outbreak situations that those deficits exist out in the field. 
as Carol mentioned, taking a different approach to how we think about epidemiology, I think is very critical for this current outbreak. You know, historically, we've really focused on the interrelationship or interconnectedness between farms, because historically, that's where we saw the most outbreaks occurring from farm to farm spread. This current outbreak or ongoing outbreak is really unique in the fact that currently, at least 83% of the cases are actually events in which the virus has gone directly from wild birds to a domestic poultry farm. And that's a really different question that we need to ask. Not so much how are the farms spreading things, but how are these initial introductions occurring? And that's really critical as we look at how we stop or prevent the spread or introduction of disease. We really don't have a good feel for how these individual introductions are happening. And therefore, we really can't design biosecurity plans to address those introductions or critical control points because we just don't know the answers to those questions yet. And then, of course, for those of you that are close to the poultry industry, kind of the big elephant in the room for us when we think about what tools should we be looking at, is, of course, is vaccination. Vaccination in order to augment USDA's stamping out policy. And that bleeds nicely into my next question. USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack recently said that the United States is about 18 months away from launching a domestic vaccination program even as other nations already are testing and using vaccines to protect birds, especially those being raised for human consumption. Do these programs offer any implications for the near future of the U.S. poultry industries specifically? That's an excellent question. And I think, you know, it's important to remember exactly how vaccines work. And briefly, we give a non-infectious virus to or part of a virus to the animal. The animal develops its own immune response to that virus and or that viral particle and develops immunity through antibodies. And those antibodies then protect the bird should a infectious virus come along. Now, in the past, we were not as advanced in the types of vaccines that we had, nor were we as advanced in having the vast number of diagnostic testing facilities and testing personnel that we currently have. And so for a long time, we uh, talked about how vaccines could actually spread infection. And that was, you know, a dogma that we've disproved over and over and over again. In addition, we've talked to, you know, we had an understanding that it could create new mutations that would be dangerous for people. And we've demonstrated that we can vaccinate without that. But still in place are trade implications. So if we were to vaccinate in the U.S., then there's several several countries that would likely discontinue trade with us because of those now older ideas about what vaccination, what the risk of vaccination might be. Chris, as you mentioned, you know, we are kind of watching other places around the world that are starting to use uh, vaccines to address what seems to be an, an ongoing challenge that doesn't show any signs of stopping. So, you know, there are definitely advantages to implementing a focused and limited vaccine program to augment our current um, policy of, of stamping out 
as Carol mentioned, you know, vaccines are used to create an immune response. And so once that bird has that immunity, what happens is if they were to come into contact or get exposed to the HPA virus, first of all, it takes more virus to get them infected. But more importantly, once they are infected, they really shed a lot less virus. And, and USDA Agricultural Research Service has lots of data on how much of a reduction those vaccines can impact or can change that characteristic. So that reduced reduce shedding rate means that the spread and the risk for subsequent farms and animals to get infected is greatly reduced. And so with that comes a benefit such as improved welfare, right? Because fewer birds are impacted. I would also reduce the cost of response, which all taxpayers should be interested in. It also would allow for the reallocation of current response personnel to focus on things like prevention, which could further improve um, or reduce the number of cases that we see out in the field. And I think for all of us to participate in the food economy, you know, fewer impacted farms would also stabilize the food supply and most likely reduce the financial impact of these ongoing outbreaks on consumers. So it sounds that in addition to the epidemiology aspect, there's also a political aspect and educational aspect and a communications aspect, all of which have to be sort of handled before some of these programs can be completely successfully initiated. Correct. We are all very closely watching what's happening in France right now. France has chosen to utilize vaccine to protect their domestic uh, duck production primarily. And so we're very interested to see how effective their policies are, as well as what kind of surveillance they're utilizing to ensure that if one of those vaccinated flocks happens to get infected, how are they able to detect those flocks to ensure that it doesn't facilitate spread, which, as Carol mentioned, is one of the concerns with utilizing vaccine in an outbreak situation. Wow, that sounds like a huge uh, escape in terms of something like this happening in the United States market versus France, which is a lot smaller. Yes, France also, as a participant in the EU, has the extra benefit of having some built-in protection when it comes to trade within the EU that obviously the U.S. you know isn't privy to as a non-EU member. So there's also some, as Carol mentioned, some trade things that are a little bit unique to the French situation that we obviously aren't going to be able to, to leverage at this point in time, at least. That's an excellent point, Michelle. Now let's turn to another angle aimed at addressing HPAI. Researchers recently published findings from their efforts involving gene editing technology that appears to have provided some resistance to the virus in chickens. The scientists reported that using genetic engineering procedures known as CRISPR showed limited success in protecting birds to some degree, although the virus can adapt quickly and cause infections when some chickens were exposed to higher doses of HPAI. From your perspectives, where should this type of research head next? While in general, we're very excited about the application of CRISPR to help improve animal resiliency to infection and disease, the application here for influenza or HPAI in domestic poultry presents a couple of problems. You know, first, even though we can improve the resiliency to infection, although imperfect in this application, this particular application doesn't address the reservoir for the virus, which is wild bird populations. So even though we have a solution here that could potentially mitigate some risk, we're not addressing the overall big picture, which is the continuous risk of spillover of virus from wild bird populations into domestic populations. 
The other challenge here is that influenza viruses have the ability to change or mutate uh, very rapidly, making it a challenge to address for all mitigations, not just particularly for CRISPR. But this combined tendency for change, uh, and you combine that with the sheer number of birds, the domestic bird population, poultry population, that we would have to replace to put these CRISPR altered genetics in place, you can see how it would become a challenge for us to keep up with the rate of mutation for the virus. And this potentially could make this imperfect mitigation quickly irrelevant for this application. But I know Carol has a good example of how CRISPR could be used to address animal health challenges. Thanks, Michelle. So CRISPR does present a great opportunity to advance animal health and food safety, like you've said, Michelle. The recent publication in the CRISPR journal by Berger et al. is a good demonstration of that. In this work, the PERS virus, which is an endemic virus of domesticated swine populations, is targeted. They simply did gene editing, the CD163 gene, to create a resistant pig. This is a much better way to use this technology because in this situation, there is no significant reservoir host. There's only a single species, swine, that's infected, not the 9,000 avian species that we have in the world, plus the additional mammals that can be infected with influenza viruses. The journal article is also really, really good in showing how the mutation in the CD163 allele has been worked into and is being worked into foundation breeding populations. So it shows this combination of you know really high level basic science with applied science in bringing to the fore these PERS resistant pigs. So to me, I think that's the way CRISPR should be used for a specific target in a single species, we don't end up with unintended consequences. So that could also give some hope to the pork industry, where the fear of having PEDV come onto the United States shores is so high, now that it's in the Western Hemisphere, that this could be a battle that could be a lot easier to handle than stopping HBAI infections, for example. Well, yeah. So African swine fever is, of course, a threat. I don't think we're to the point yet where we know specifically the types of genetics that we would need to alter. You know, of course, PERS has been studied for a long time, and there's been a lot of studies on genetic resistance in which genes are involved. And so it makes it easier to know which genes to target. So I think this is a great example, but of course, any great example comes with a lot of work in the forefront. And so there's probably no easy button here, but this is a good example. And particularly a cost value as well. Let's take a pause for a brief message from our sponsor today, Botter. Today's podcast is brought to you by Botter. Unlock the heart of efficient poultry processing with the Botter Advanced Evisceration Line. Featuring automatic giblet harvesting. Our technology delivers superior carcass quality and food safety standards through smart processing. Designed to provide real-time data capturing and reporting, our high-performance equipment ensures top-quality bird production while optimizing your evisceration line. The sophisticated controls and monitoring system includes a performance monitor display of the giblet pack transfer percentage helping plant personnel achieve peak performance. See why Botter is a cut above the rest. Visit us at botter.com for more information. Now back to the podcast. 
And we're back. Now, the U.S. poultry industry, from growers to infrastructure and supply chain providers to processors, are eagerly awaiting some concrete progress on the HPAI front now that the latest wave of the last pandemic is crawling to a close. Carol, what are you teaching the next generation of animal health students to look forward to when it comes to addressing these ever-adapting viruses? And Michelle, what are you seeing out there as a principal at Food Forward when it comes to risk mitigation? Well, you know, when we're teaching at the University of Minnesota and really at any academic institution, I think we're at the point now, and High Path AI is just one of the most recent demonstrations of this, but we really need to have people who can work through the problems that people like me will never see in my lifetime because the world is changing very quickly. So we need to, I think one of the key things we need to provide for the next generation is a framework for critical thinking. I have a very strong belief that we need to try to give students a foundation in surveillance, how to understand what they're seeing. So they need to be able to know what changes are coming, what normal is, what new normals are, and they need to be able to adapt to it. And Michelle and I are both veterinarians, and she's mentioned the need for veterinarians and astute veterinarians, veterinary practitioners in poultry work. And I think as a vet, it's also critically important that vets are involved in the decision-making processes around disease. So in educating the next generation of veterinarians and animal health professionals, I think we also need to take a step back and think about the organizations that they will work for and within. And perhaps we need to rethink that a little bit because, as I mentioned, the world has changed. And as disease threats become much more important, more of a cost to meet in food production, I think it's critically important that veterinarians step to the fore. Yeah, Carol and I always like to say we're always preparing for the pandemic that just happened. And especially that especially applies to HPAI because of how quickly the virus adapts uh, to different populations of birds and how that can change the way it appears, how quickly it moves, how impactful it is for poultry. So having those critical thinking skills is really important. And also having veterinarians that are out in the field so they can kind of bridge the differences between policy development and policy implementation. That's really where a lot of the hard work gets done, trying to bridge the gap to between, okay, what do we need to document or write up to improve our response, to mitigate its impact, um, which are all very important exercises. But on the field side of things, on the implementation side of things, it becomes a challenge sometimes to implement because from a staffing and an industry standpoint, you know, poultry industry, not different from a lot of livestock industries, man, people retention and training is really challenging. So Chris, your question around, you know, what other mitigations or things are happening out there in the field, it becomes very apparent when you go to either family owned farms or, you know, larger corporate farming organizations, that recruitment, retention, and training become key pieces here. And not just for the operation of the company and the efficiencies of the company, but when we turn towards things like influenza prevention and control, 
animal husbandry personnel are our first line of defense. These are the folks that are executing and living biosecurity every day. So, you know, we can sit in an office somewhere at the U of M or in Riverdale, Maryland with our USDA partners to perfect policy. But if we don't have trained personnel and a stable workforce out on the farm, the intended impact of that policy will fall short. So, you know, from like, again, bigger picture, not just training of veterinary personnel, but training and retention of and our staff members that are actually out on the farm working with those animals every day is also a critical piece to this puzzle. And of course, teaching critical thinking for everyone involved. <laughs> so that when they're out there seeing these situations, they can assess and figure out what the next steps might possibly be. Exactly. Yeah. Quick response and quick identification is always a key step, right? The faster you figure out what's going on, the more likely you are to impact it quickly to reduce the impact for everybody else. Absolutely. And finally, there have been a very limited number of cases of H5N1 jumping from chickens to humans on a global basis. Although some cases have been confirmed in other mammals, as you pointed out previously, Carol, including elephants, foxes, fur seals, raccoons, and even a polar bear in recent years. Should there be more concern on efforts to address a potential spread to humans down the road, or can you foresee research that ultimately can limit HPAI to birds versus them making that jump, the viruses that is, to humans involved in the poultry industry? Well, for sure. So humans can be infected with high-path AI virus that we have circulating in the U.S. and across the globe. Influenza viruses are notorious for jumping species, as you've mentioned. But the way that the poultry industry is structured is a big part of why infections haven't happened. Generally, there's very few people that care for large populations of birds, and that reduces the human-animal interactions that happen. So when an infection happens in a flock, the opportunity for human exposure is quite limited. So in addition, we screen people and make sure that once they have been exposed, the Department of Public Health comes in and does tracebacks and checks people for the symptoms, avian influenza exposure, just to prevent and make sure that they haven't happened. But in addition, unlike some other parts of the world, we have a system in the U.S. where if an infection happens, it's going to stay on the farm. It's not going to enter our harvest facilities or enter into the consumer market. So in the U.S., we screen those birds, test them, and maintain them under very high biosecurity for about a week before they move to slaughter. So they're under biosecurity all the time, but it's super high that week before they move and they get tested. Once they move to slaughter, we can be assured that they don't have influenza or once the eggs that they're laying are moved to processing, we can be assured that they were laid by hens that were not infected with influenza. So in that way, we really prevent the opportunity for the virus to move into humans. So I think that's mostly what we do. In addition, I just want to mention that, you know, since Michelle and I are both veterinarians, our general approach to preventing zoonotic infections is to prevent it in the domesticated host that would be the source. 
And so what we'd like to do is control the disease in poultry. And while we're struggling to get that done, you know, as you've, as we've talked about here, there's some things on the horizon that may improve how we do that. And I think we'll get there. Yeah, I think many of the topics or issues that we've already talked about really fall into this category of how do we protect people. So like Carol alluded to, it's very much about controlling the disease within the I guess the secondary species, since since we're already having a spillover from wild birds into domestic poultry in this case, but things like you know improved biosecurity, identifying those critical control points, so we can have more effective mitigations to stop those initial introductions to start with. The red herring or the elephant in the room, whatever analogy you want to use to talk about the utilization of vaccine to protect birds, but then also to reduce the amount of viral shed, which would subsequently protect people. And it might be a little bit counterintuitive when we talk about protecting people, but bringing people into the workforce, training them well, having a stable workforce to um, be able to successfully implement those biosecurity programs that we know can protect animals from disease, including influenza, is also a, a key piece to the puzzle, like I previously mentioned. And it's interesting you use the word puzzle, Michelle, because it sounds like there are a lot of pieces that haven't been found yet to even get this puzzle started. In any event, thank you so much. Our thanks to Dr. Carol Cardona of the University of Minnesota and Dr. Michelle Crum, Principal at Food Forward LLC in Minneapolis, for their insights on the seemingly perpetual war against HPAI and their perspectives on the latest research on how to protect birds from the virus. Additional thanks to Botter for sponsoring this episode of Meeting Pod. And of course, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. That's a wrap. Until next time. Remember to tune in on Mondays to get the inside track on the people and the processes that drive the protein industry. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Meeting Place and Alt Meat magazines on social media, and be sure to visit our websites at meetingplace.com and altmeat.net.